I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Perhaps the hottest issue out today in U.S. monetary policy is the question of the digital dollar. Now, Usually, this discussion concerns the Federal Reserve and whether or not the central bank should create a dollar-backed cryptocurrency of some sort, and if so, what characters or features it should have. But all too often glossed over in discussions is the role of stablecoins, those digital dollars that aren't backed by any particular government, but which can be pegged to fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar or designed to imitate the returns of the dollar or other government currencies. Now, this particular species of cryptocurrencies is created by market participants and individuals in society, often with the desire to have independence from the government while providing more stable value than often volatile self-referential cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And because they share some of the technical features of Bitcoin, these third rails of the cryptocurrency universe have exploded in volume since the pandemic, which has, in turn, raised the question of how and whether these particular kinds of assets should be regulated and what lessons they hold for the larger conversation on central bank digital currencies. Now, to answer these questions, we have a treat for you today at Fintech Beat. Stopping by the show is Finney Wong, the former Associate General Counsel of MakerDAO. And for a second tour on the beat is Nick Carter, a partner at Castle Island Ventures and the co-author of a new and exciting report called Crypto Dollars, the story thus far. Now, if you know anything about these two, you know that they are some of the Jedi Force wheelers in the cryptocurrency universe. So we are especially delighted to have them here to break down the seismic rise of crypto dollars in the monetary system and what it all means for conversations on digital and monetary policy. Nick, Finney, thanks so much for stopping by the show. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for having me on for the first time. I'm excited. Nick, as I mentioned at the outset, you have a really interesting report that caught my eye, Crypto Dollars, the story thus far. And to kick things off, I think it might be useful for you to outline some of the highlights. And uh, while you're doing it, maybe explain why you're using this new term, uh, Crypto Dollar, and not the more common term of stablecoin. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, I th- I think stablecoins were kind of due for a rebrand, quite frankly, and uh, they've only been around for a few years now, maybe you know about six or seven years at the most, and only two years of real prominence. But stablecoins, the the term kind of emerged as a reaction to Bitcoin and other volatile crypto assets, and um, I I just feel that it's redundant in the context of the dollar, which we sort of naturally understand is stable. So it doesn't really add a lot of semantic content to call it a stable coin. Um, Whereas crypto dollars to me is more informative because it it conveys information about 
where they circulate and the very nature of the thing. So these are tokens which um, are effectively dollar denominated or track the return profile of the dollar, which you circulate on crypto financial infrastructure. So that means public blockchains, uh, the exchanges that are the endpoints of these things, and wallet software that engages with the blockchains. And so that that's the crypto component that tells you a lot about the nature of the thing. And then lastly, it's uh, basically a play on euro dollars. So euro dollars are these dollar liabilities which circulate outside of the confines of the financial, the U.S. financial system, and they're kind of understood to be less encumbered. And you can sort of do more with them. They're they're less surveilled, less regulated. And it, similarly, I would say crypto dollars have similar qualities to that. They are fundamentally less encumbered. You can do a lot with them. Uh, you can make cross-border transactions with them. Uh, they, they're kind of fast settling. They sort of resemble bank wires uh, with less intermediation. So I think it's, it's an apt term. And I think it connotes a, just a grander vision for the thing as opposed to remaining a niche asset within the crypto industry. Maybe something that'll become much more widespread. What was the motivation behind doing this paper now then? These things in the last two years have grown enormously from effectively nothing in 2017 to about $12 billion in monetary base today, and they settle $2 billion a day. And that's small in the grand scheme when you compare it to Fedwire and Chips and Swift and so on. But the rate it's growing, it could become a genuine parallel piece of financial infrastructure uh, administered by private issuers uh, in very short order. So that was the objective of the piece, was basically to introduce this concept to outsiders and say, hey, look, the crypto industry has produced something really compelling here, um, which doesn't necessarily rely on uh, super volatile uh, you know, tokens or marginal um, investment products. I think one reason this paper caught my eye, besides the fact that this is a very novel uh, shift in nomenclature, was that you're making gestures to both the future and the past uh, in order to highlight how stablecoins are changing and, and challenging the conversation on banking. Um, on the one hand, you're gesturing to free banking, a mid-19th century uh, monetary arrangement where banks were free to issue their own paper currency. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you're making some very pointed comments about central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, and the new race underway um, by central banks to fashion digital fiat currencies. So just to provide context for our listeners, maybe you can provide a, a 10,000-foot overview of what some of your observations were. Well, if any uh, monetary historians are listening, I apologize. Uh, hopefully, I don't garble uh, my account of free banking. But certainly, this was one of the observations that I, I've been making and, and I think has become much clearer in the last few months is that these stable coins, some of them at least, or crypto dollars, some of them somewhat resemble the free banking regimes of yore, uh, as documented by Larry White and George Selgin, um, in which you have private issuers that are taking charge for, uh, for currency issuance, effectively, against a specie base. And previously, this was against gold. Um, and today, it looks to be against alternative liability-free assets, uh, cryptocurrencies chiefly Ethereum, but also potentially Bitcoin as well. Uh, and, and that's a whole class of crypto dollars, uh, which are not fiat-backed, um, which are being issued against this liability-free 
non-state monetary asset. And so they don't really rely on the financial system in any meaningful way, um, yet they still provide this dollar-denominated risk, which is really interesting for transactors. Um, and, you know, people like to compare uh, crypto dollars or stable coins with CBDCs. Um, I think there's a lot of um, potentially implementation similarities um, and potentially uh, central banks have a lot to learn from the crypto industry. And in fact, I know of a lot of folks with crypto experience that are being hired by central banks right now. Uh, so there's clearly some mutual interest there. Uh, but I would say the big, big distinction is that um, these assets, these kind of dollar-denominated assets, are for the most part outside the confines of state control uh, or you know, not as permissioned as as dollar liabilities in kind of the standard financial system. So that would, that would be the major distinction. And I think that's actually a very important quality to preserve. Um, you know, so we'll see. But I expect that'll be a significant battle in the future. Finney, you've been at the cutting edge of the stablecoin universe and spent some time at MakerDAO, a platform uh, that supports the DAI stablecoin. What's your sense as to the optimal way to to categorize stable coins, um, giving their dizzying array of qualitative features out there. I mean, how are they distinguishable from cryptocurrencies, um, and for that matter, from one another? The way I've been thinking about these different assets is to is to ask yourself, you know, whatever asset that we hold, whether it's a fiat-backed stablecoin or it's a synthetic dollar or some other kind of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, what exactly as a holder of this asset um, are my rights, the nature of my claims, and against whom? Who's my counterparty here to assert these rights? And there's two things I primarily care about. One is, do I have a valid asset? Um, is this a valid transaction? And the other is, what is the basis for the value of my asset um, so that I can reliably use it and hold on to it um, and have some sense of why I'm holding it? Um, so both of these um, factors, the validity and the value of an asset, um, have two types of assurances in my mind. Uh, one is, is cryptographic and the other is legal. So when we say, you know, I have a cryptographic claim as to X, Y, and Z, what we mean here is that um, the trust model with my counterparty is as much as possible self-contained to the code. So for you, you're basically saying, yes, the software running these high-security cryptographic protocols are important in understanding the validity of a transaction. But uh, for you, that's really part of a larger option set of choices that relate to value and whether or not a token holder is getting what she's been promised in the way she's been promised. And to get to that question, you're looking into who is doing the promise-making or commitment-making and what is ensuring, in effect, the performance of that promise or commitment? Exactly. So in the, the classic example is, um, is my uh, wallet address a valid one, right? So that is a cryptographic claim because we can verify on chain the behavior of the node operators and say, yep, yeah, that's, a, that's a valid um, wallet address. Um, the question of value is, is a bit more complex. Um, what's, what actually makes this thing worth something that I want to hold? So I think this is where um, crypto dollars differ from, say, Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is really quite unique um, in that both 
what makes a, a Bitcoin asset a valid transaction and what gives a value um, are, in my mind, both cryptographic rooted. So um, we ascribe a certain value to holding Bitcoin because of the nature of its code and its protocol and how that world um, enforces the operations. So we don't need to go outside of that. Um, but when we think about a crypto dollar, if I'm holding a token like USDC, what ultimately gives me the assurance that I can, I can get a, a dollar worth of value for one USDC? That's ultimately a legal claim because that ultimately depends on my right of redemption for that actual fiat dollar held in a bank account somewhere against the issuer um, center in the case of USDC. So I need the law to intervene in order to ensure that the issuer upholds his obligation to me in redemption. That's not something that we can reduce to the code and, and the code alone. Okay, so I'm going to just jump in here. I mean, particularly for some of, of, of our audience who may not be as familiar with, with some of these concepts. And I'm going to try to sort of break down a couple of components of what you're trying to say. As I understand it, you're sort of saying, look, you know, Bitcoin is a kind of interesting product, right? That that even though it's described as a kind of a peer-to-peer -peer system, ultimately what's required in order for it to operate is a certain kind of software code. I mean, that there's a protocol in, in effect, and then you have these, these folks called miners who, who help to sort of run the system. And our interests uh, may or may not be aligned when it comes to, 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 to getting my hands on Bitcoin. But we have this, this protocol and we have these very sophisticated cryptographic uh, methods and games that are in, in, in play that kind of keep these different kinds of parties in check. And so I'm, I'm ultimately relying on the operation of this software whenever I'm engaged in a Bitcoin transaction um, to make sure that um, transactions are faithfully and accurately consummated. Whereas when you get to the stablecoin issue, sometimes the stablecoins are digital representations of something else, and that something else may be held in a bank account or it may be under a pillow, I don't know. But at the end of the day, I'm required, I'm waiting, in effect, for someone to ultimately say, if I present that 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 stablecoin to them, to say, I want whatever is is has been promised, assuming something has been promised in terms of its redemption. And that 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 mechanism of, 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 of redemption, of going to someone and saying, you owe me something, is imbued with a certain kind of legal relationship, whereas when I'm relying on Bitcoin and computer code, that's a whole sort of different relationship. And as a result, they need to be distinguished from uh, one another. Exactly. I would say in the case of um, Bitcoin, um, it's it's trust minimized. I don't have to rely necessarily on my counterparty to do the right thing and uphold his or her obligations to me. So it's a, there's a good policy reason why in, in that case, um, we have a self-enforcing mechanism. Um, I don't need the law to inter intervene because it doesn't add much. Uh, but in other cases, I'm fundamentally relying on uh, this trust relationship with my counterparty to do their part. Nick, let's take Finney's observation here a step further. Um, she's talking about value tied to a person ultimately getting what they're expecting, uh, whether or not it be a user of Bitcoin relying on the integrity of the Bitcoin ledger or, or holders of stable coins that promise redeemability and tell holders that they can access 
um, a fiat currency or even other cryptocurrencies that are essentially held in trust. Now, you observe that some stablecoins, um, which you describe as synthetic crypto dollars, can be operated through algorithmic trading mechanisms, creating really a new conception and understanding of what digital currencies can do and and, and look like. Uh, but as you know, uh, policymakers are really trying to grapple with developments like these and what they mean, especially given their uh, potential volatility and the fact that they're viewed at times as investments. So at a most fundamental level, how do you view these synthetic instruments and do you consider them instruments worthy to be understood as money? That's a great question. I, you know, I, I find the term money to be kind of a maybe a culturally loaded term. I mean, I, I think it really depends on your definition. Um, you know, there have been plenty of things that have served as money or that have had monetary characteristics. Um, you know, I would say it, there are plenty of commodities in the world that are injected with a monetary premium. Uh, I would say even, you know, stocks and property have that characteristics. And I don't know if I would refer to them as money. Um, but certainly these synthetic stablecoins are intended to serve as a medium of exchange and potentially a way to, to store wealth through time and space. Uh, so in that capacity, you could call them money. They're not a unit of account in of themselves because they're reliant on an external unit of account, uh, typically the dollar. Um, but there, there's also, you know, as, as Fanny alludes to, there's certainly some issues um, and complexities in terms of the trust relationships with the synthetic stable coins, uh, which are not as clear cut, I would say, as the the convertible stable coins. Um, generally speaking, the the synthetic ones uh, are more complex. They tend to be more moving parts, uh, and the the trust assumptions tend to be more obscure and more veiled. It's not entirely clear uh, who owes whom what in these systems. Um, and and there's also a whole bunch of different models. So there's there's three to five different models of these synthetic stable coins. Yeah, and and Vinny, you you too have have, have certainly um, had a, a, a significant concern, or at least awareness of the the variety of of ways in which stable coins can operate. And and one of the more interesting things that I can recall you hearing before, and in another another context, was the fact that. A stable coin or some synthetic stable coins can operate in ways that just promise to mimic or to achieve the the expected value or returns of a certain kind of referenced asset. And that this in and of itself, people can be a little bit surprised that they're not only are are, are these stable coins not re- redeemable, but they may even operate in ways that are that are unexpected and and could transform how they are uh, regulated. Maybe you could give us a, a quick example as to as to what you mean. So the predominant model for synthetic stablecoins is to over collateralize. Um, so you have a volatile asset such as ETH, you over collateralize that. And what you're really trying to do is um, is dampen the the volatility of of that ETH, but you're but you're creating a, a second asset, the synthetic dollar. Um, in, in many of these cases, it's a, it's a precise peg or a fixed peg to the U.S. dollar. So that requires quite a bit of active management to maintain that peg. Because one, you've got an underlying um, basket of very volatile assets. And the other is that with this model, as 
Um, as an ordinary holder of the stablecoin, I don't have a right of redemption um, to the underlying assets as I would, um, for example, with a fiat-backed stablecoin. The only person who has the right of redemption is someone who um, provided the collateral in the first place. Right? So without this redemption feature, I don't have a way of forcing the peg when it's off peg because there's an underlying asset that I'm trying to mirror, that, that there's a symmetry there between the collateral and, and the, the price peg, right? So in this kind of complex mechanism, there needs to be a lot of um, active management around all these different risk parameters. So what kind of collateral, how much, um, how much of the stable coin we can issue, what, what are the, the, the amount of collateral relative to, to the amount of stable coins, right? So this gets very, very complex. Um, and when you have this kind of active management, to me, that looks, that looks like we've got a counterparty type relationship or fiduciary type relationship with those who are making these management decisions, right? So this goes back to what we we're talking about before with, you know, what it looks like a cryptographic code enforced claim versus a human one where we might require the intervention of our legal systems, right? So um, in reality, with a lot of these um, synthetic stable coins is that we've got a human social layer that makes a lot of these decisions. I mean, they're using tokens to cast their votes on chain, but the decision itself is a human one, right? So, um, so there's some kind of at the minimum counterparty relationship with those decision makers. And which, which I suppose, it sounds like you're sort of tiptoeing around is also the the securities law question, and, and as to whether or not that kind of uh, active management uh, starts to move you um, into uh, securities law. Now, Nick, you also talk about privacy pretty directly, and, and you do so by drawing some um, interesting comparisons, looking at the costs and benefits of, of stablecoins uh, in the conversation of privacy and comparing them to central bank digital currencies. And you ended up with some pretty pointed observations. Uh, maybe you can share where you came out. Yeah, so I, I would say... It's been interesting to follow the debate around CBDCs because privacy does come up frequently. And in a sense, CBDCs are, are trying to create a, a cash, physical cash-like instruments in a digital context. And of course, cash is something that's blessed with some really nice qualities. Uh, autonomy, uh, neutrality, and uh, privacy in some certain contexts, at least below certain thresholds. And unfortunately, or you know, for better or for worse, cash is kind of declining in usage generally, although that that's not always the case. Um, but you know, as as the world gets more sophisticated and more technologically enabled, it looks like it's time to have a cash-like product on digital internet rails, and that's effectively what's being proposed with CBDCs. Um, however, I think our whole experience with banking over the last forty years in the United States, at least, has been one in which Privacy is very much marginalized, uh, and and there's been a general creep towards uh, demanding more metadata and more kind of transactional information. Um, and you know, today my understanding is that transactors have very little privacy, uh, regardless of whether they're using online banking or PayPal or Venmo, etc. All of those records are accessible uh, by the government uh, with with very limited difficulty. So. The I think that's part of the inspiration for stablecoins 
Um, you know, the people building these products are, for the most part, crypto entrepreneurs. They tend to be quite ideological. And um, that w- that's a stated objective of Bitcoin. And a lot of the, uh, the descendants of Bitcoin is to restore some measure of transactional privacy to the world. Uh, because fundamentally, um, many would argue that it's a human rights issue. Um, and countries with no transactional privacy whatsoever, um, like China, for instance, uh, th- this is potentially, um, you know, is quite authoritarian in nature. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that there should be no ability for the government to intervene uh, and prosecute uh, financial crimes. But I think the there should be a carve out for, uh, you know, transactional autonomy. If we uploaded all of our financial transactions to a database, that would be that anybody could scrutinize, that would be disastrous. So it's interesting seeing, um, you know, Bitcoin is a uh, pseudonymous system. It's possible to infer some information from the transactional graph. Uh, certain stable coins that exist today utilize more advanced cryptography that does provide strong privacy. Um, we're seeing the growth there. Um, I won't get, get into details, but that's definitely a direction this is going. Um, and I think that's definitely a stated objective. It's not where stablecoins are today. So they're sort of a mixture of private and surveillable. Um, but I would say when you use a stablecoin like USDT or USDC, you do have a measure of privacy, uh, especially if you're not engaging directly with the issuer, uh, redeeming or creating coins. You do have a measure of privacy that you don't have when you use PayPal or Venmo or any of those other P2P systems where there's kind of identity data and metadata in every single transaction uh, and where they are programmatically closing accounts and things like that. Stablecoins operate in a very different way. The fiat-backed stablecoins have uh, this blacklist model, um, which isn't employed very frequently. And then certain of these synthetic stablecoins they have very limited ability to stop any transactional type um, because uh, there's kind of it's a more decentralized governance model uh, for better or for worse. Uh, so that's kind of the promise of uh, of stablecoins is to restore this um, this measure of transactional privacy to the world, which is not really being uh, provided by by the by the public sector currently. It's very possible that that could change. I I should certainly hope that. Any CBDC, if it were to be created in the West, would entrench some of the privacy and autonomy characteristics of actual cash. That's really interesting. You know, one of the knocks on 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 stable coins and crypto in general is that hey, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're working right now. In fact, you know, in the aftermath of of the Twitter attacks and and and, and hacks and, and this idea that that cryptocurrencies are are really tools of criminals to abscond away uh, with 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 assets and with uh, ill gotten gains. Uh, one of the the Interesting questions that arise when trying to compare a CBDC to a stable coin or to a crypto dollar uh, is is whether or not, and the degree to which any particular transaction is reversible. Because if you have a CBDC, apparently you have it's run on one centralized ledger where the government could sort of rewind transactions. And, and when you're working in the world of a of a stable coin, um, there would have to be some kind of uh, hard fork and 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 in a decentralized environment that could be very very hard to to operationalize. Um, is there a sense, um, Nick, that, that that you get in terms of the ultimate robustness 
of a decentralized infrastructure when when there are um, attacks to the integrity of, of, of the infrastructure? I would say as far as stablecoins are concerned, the biggest questions are on the ability of the actual issuers to operate um, and stay within the boundaries of their local laws uh, and to resist capture um, and prosecution. So the largest stablecoin issuer, Tether, right now is they've hit this, this pitched court battle with the New York Attorney General. Uh, so we'll see how that resolves. Um, but there's still unresolved questions over virtually all of the issuers of the fiat-backed stablecoins, uh, especially around the, these these very privacy qualities that I'm alluding to. Uh, to me, that's the part of the infrastructure for stablecoins that is the most fragile, those, um, those centralized kind of endpoints to the network. The blockchain element I'm really not concerned about. Um, they've proven to be very robust. Uh, historically, um, certain stablecoins straddle multiple public blockchains. Uh, Tether, the largest one, exists on seven. USDC now straddles several blockchains. Uh, so the kind of crypto economic assurances, I would say, are very sound. Um, these the, the software that underscores these blockchains is probably some of the most scrutinized open source software on the planet. Uh, my my guess is that there's been more code review. Uh, gone into you know each line of Bitcoin code than any other uh, open source uh, infrastructure kind of code that exists today, um, and it's so difficult to change the the kind of base layer software that powers the blockchains that it's very easy to detect if there's any kind of malicious code being inserted or anything. Uh, so the part that I'm more nervous about is actually the more centralized entities that fundamentally have to inject uh, outside information into these systems and potentially interface with the financial system. Whatever their internal operations, stablecoins um, are having an external impact on the monetary system. Uh, there has, after all, been uh, explosive growth in these assets, and some people are concerned about what this can mean. Um, Vinny, what's your view on stablecoins and their monetary implications? So there's a couple of thoughts that go through my head. Um, one is uh, a term that Nick used in the report on crypto dollarization, since most of these um, stable coins are, are uh, pegged to the U.S. dollar. So, you know, dollarization pre-crypto is already a concern of organizations like the IMF because it's displacing the sovereignty of, um, you know, smaller nation states um, in being to make monetary policy. So that was one of the chief criticism about Libra in its original design, because Libra had its own unit of account, so that's a direct challenge to um, monetary sovereignty and so forth. So a part of me also thinks, well, even assuming that um, we you know, we can somehow trust these um, issuers of, of crypto dollars, is that actually a better alternative? Um, are we not replicating our Western financial hegemony in some different way, right? Um, as one thing that we've learned, you know, I think, from the last 20 years with, with internet, actually, internet was meant to be uh, a form of decentralized computing, uh, but we see high concentrations of power amongst intermediaries. Uh, a lot of people in crypto, right, like to say, oh, uh, you know, the government of Venezuela is failing its people, look at the high inflation, human rights abuses, so forth. 
I don't think people dispute that. I think that's a very easy case to make. But the harder question that no one asks is, well, what exactly is the relationship of Silicon Valley to that person in Venezuela? What's the social contract there? Um, can that person in Venezuela have actual rights that she can enforce in a reasonable manner against, against that uh, issuer? Nick, Finney is really looking under the hood here at the infrastructure supporting stablecoins and observes that this may be more than anything a transfer of power rather than a dilution of it, uh, creating new kinds of power relationships uh, driven by corporate interests. And she's making the point on top of observations in your paper that stablecoins are growing in popularity at such a rate that their aggregate value is outstripping the monetary basis of many developing countries. I mean, with all that in mind, have, have you given much thought to this? And, and what are uh, your your responses to this shift in, in influence that we're seeing that's being mediated by crypto uh, market infrastructures? Yeah, it's an extremely uh, good point. And I think the crypto industry often fails to reckon with the fact that they're, they are just proposing to create novel intermediaries um, and and are not really aspiring to create neutral financial infrastructure. Uh, in my opinion, the only credibly neutral uh, financial infrastructure is public blockchains like Bitcoin, which really don't care about your identity and will service your transaction regardless. And I think part of the reason people align with that concept is that they've seen the politicization of the U.S. Uh, financial infrastructure over the last few decades which is used for strategic purposes globally, as we've discussed. Um, it's used as a form of power projection. And it's also used um, you know, to disempower certain sectors, even within the U.S., that maybe the FTIC doesn't like very much. Um, you know, For instance, Operation Chokepoint uh, is very well known for, there is not, strictly speaking, any illegal activity that happened there. Um, but you know, the government still used the banks and uh, the bank regulator uh, to kind of crack down on that activity. And I think as we see more kind of politicization of like potentially even fintech companies like uh, Square and PayPal and so on, there will be a reaction and a demand for credibly neutral financial infrastructure. And um, the question is who can provide it? I certainly think that the, the really open public blockchain protocols can do that, but of course they can't give you dollar-denominated risk, which is what everybody wants. Um, so... I think um, you know a heterogeneity of issuers and an extremely vibrant and free market, uh, as opposed to kind of a sclerotic, um, you know, oligopolistic one, uh, would give us the best shot at uh, at providing people plenty of options. Uh, but I think fundamentally, um, you know, it's 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 definitely important to worry about these things, but it's also important to consider the welfare benefits of exposing savers two currencies that are fundamentally more stable than perhaps their own local currency. Um, and if I, I don't think you can sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube at this point. We have the ability to create uh, dollar-denominated cryptographic um, tokens um, and circulate them on crypto financial infrastructure throughout the entire globe. Now there are basically crypto exchanges in almost every jurisdiction, there are peer-to-peer -peer crypto exchanges that are very hard to, to crack down on, even if you are the government of Venezuela, for instance. Um, and these are delivering these tokens into the hands of regular folks 
um, who much prefer to hold something that tracks the return of the dollar as opposed to the bolivar. Um, and if you look at the exchange volumes um, on these peer-to-peer exchanges, you see they're in the most inflationary countries generally. Uh, so there's kind of an evidence demand for this. And my guess is that through this more financial integration, the proliferation of smartphones and mobile computing and cheaper internet, and obviously the crypto infrastructure that we've seen, there will be this predation of the strongest uh, and most credible currencies against the the weakest and most inflationary currencies globally. Uh, And we could certainly see a a die-off or uh, an acceleration of those inflationary characteristics as people exit them. And you know, certain states might object to that naturally. But if you look at historical case studies like Ecuador, that was a situation where there was a spontaneous bottom-up dollarization uh, that's been well-documented. And it it looks like the outcome there was fairly good uh, in terms of stability and in terms of, um, you know, saving regular folks from expropriation by the state uh, by devaluing the currency, uh, which we're seeing in places like Argentina and Lebanon right now. Uh, so my stance is that it's fundamentally uh, about choice. And now that the internet exists and we can actually pass value on the internet, um, it's just a matter of time before virtually every saver on earth, regardless of their, where they live, has a free choice of the currency they choose to save in. Finney, I think you see a lot in Nick's observations, but you see things ideally as moving or, or evolving in a bit of a, of a different direction. And you're working on this idea of social tinder, that crypto adopts an additional community or local layer for crypto dollars that would make it more moral and, and even more efficient. I, I found these ideas that I've heard in other contexts, you know, really interesting. And maybe you can share with us, you know, what exactly you have in mind and, and how it relates to this conversation. Uh, sure, Chris. Um, I think this topic is actually links back to what Nick talked about in his paper on f- free banking. Um, so the idea of a local currency um, is a type of currency, uh, or it's a more like a currency substitute. So it's not legal tender, which is why I call it social tender, because it's proto-legal tender. It's based on that social contract and that social bond uh, where a community of people recognize, um, recognize it and say, well, we're willing to accept this currency substitute um, and, and redeem it at face value for each other's services and goods and so forth. I mean, and, and they've been around for, for decades, long before Bitcoin, as a way to encourage productive value to stay and multiply within that local community, right? So the stronger your social ties are, the more people are willing to accept this currency substitute, um, then the more likely that money is going to recirculate and you have this multiplier effect. So that's all very good. And I think we need more of that, especially post-pandemic. And what's really exciting to me is that there's so many um, of my friends that are working on making local currencies into cryptocurrencies. So my friend Will is working with the Red Cross um, in Kenya. He's been working on local currencies in very poor communities in Kenya um, since 2010. And since 2018, uh, he's made them into cryptocurrencies. And now they're working on various new models to to create 
basically like a fractional reserve. So the greater your social tender, the more people are willing to accept and recirculate that value, you're not really going to be redeeming for the reserves as much. So you can have a fractional reserve, right? So you can be more capital efficient. And I think one of the things that I find a little bit sad about crypto is that we don't have a lot of this social trust in, in, um, in crypto communities, which is why models such as synthetic dollars are so capital inefficient. We have to overcompensate with our crypto collateral because we don't feel comfortable enough in putting in our identities and putting in our legal institutions. We do not have enough of that, of that tr- social layer trust. Finney and Nick, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me on, Chris. One of the things you understand when talking to experts like Nick and Finney is that the stablecoin conversation really is just an extension of our larger conversation on money. It's asking us, even if we use an instrument that doesn't have its own unit of account and instead refers to other currencies, can we consider it to be money if it's still being used as a medium of exchange and operates as a store of value? It's also making us look closer at the concept of a store of value and pushes us to ask, to what extent does value run not only on technical rails, but also community rails? And how do we define utility and for whom? Now, all of these questions, surprisingly, run far beyond economics and even beyond engineering. And when we peel back the layers, they touch on fundamental questions concerning our very social contract that we enjoy with government and with one another. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note a global technology and media company.